Thank you so much. You may be seated. It is an absolute joy to be with you. I love this church. This is a great church. This is a healthy church. I love the worship. I love the transition, the way Pastor Nancy did that. You are being educated well in the scriptures. You know, once you get saved, you got to learn something. You can't just go to church and sing and shout and dance about, although I love to do that. Last night we had a Holy Ghost party because there ain't nothing like a Holy Ghost party. It was so much fun. It was so much fun. Uh, but you want to learn something. You want to grow. Jesus, at only, only two times it says Jesus preached. The rest of the time it says he taught. You need to learn something about the God that you serve. You need to learn on how to walk in the Spirit, how to live in the Spirit, how to be led in the Spirit, how to allow the Holy Spirit to come upon you. Most Christians, they leave out the Holy Spirit. You have to grow in your relationship with the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. That will expand the love of God in your life. That will expand your appreciation for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I love your pastors, all of your pastors, pastors Joe and Nancy, and I just love what God is doing here. This is a fun, healthy place. It is a great church, and the only sad thing is this will all be over in a few hours, so i got to come back sooner than two years, okay? And my wife, Bonnie, will be in the next service. Um, she got. To, she works very hard as a nurse at the University of Illinois, and so she wanted to. Uh, you like the University of Illinois? Our football sucks. Uh, so I was the chaplain for one of the chaplains for 11 years of our football team on the sidelines and all that. I don't think my prayers did any good. <laughs> so you know, uh, God's been so faithful to me. God's been so good to me. I'm from a small town. Grew up very, 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 very poor. If you leave the 1-0 out, I grew up Poe. But I didn't know I was that way till I got in junior high in the peer pressure. Uh, but my mom and dad loved each other. My dad was so proud of his three boys. And I have no regrets for the way I grew up. My dad never got saved till a month and a half before he died. He was Catholic. Uh, he was okay with the priests, but he did not like the nuns. I'd go to Mass with him on Saturday night, and he'd swear in the lobby and I'd say dad can you just wait till we get out of church and do your swearing out in the parking lot <laughs> you know well I don't like those nuns I'm like well we all know that dad he went to school and he had a nun that was not too nice to him and, but he did get born again a month and a half before he passed away and I'm grateful Woo! for that um, my mother was Pentecostal raised us in church I really don't remember when I gave my life to Jesus you know, I've had college students say to me, have you ever seen Jesus turn water into wine? And I said, no, but I've seen him turn lots of winos into water. I've seen Jesus instantly sober people in East St. Louis and here on the streets of Chicago. For 10 years, had the privilege of doing the Chicago Outreach with David Wilkerson, prayed with Maria in 1983 at a church somewhere, I don't know, when she was spirit baptized. And here she is on the front row of your church. You know, if you'll just serve the Lord and be faithful to the Lord and enjoy it, I feel sorry for some Christians. They do not enjoy serving the Lord. Oh, that's good. I want to serve the Lord. If you don't want to serve the Lord, well, then you can have double your sins back, okay? Like double mint gum. I like serving Jesus. I'm grateful for all the friendships I've had over my life, all the opportunities I've had over my life. God is a very good God. Amen. 
And I'm a grandfather. I want to show you a picture of my grandchildren here. Go to the other picture, if you would. There's my five grandbabies. Uh, Reagan is my oldest up there to the left. And then my youngest is Keegan. And I get to see them more. And some of you know Professor Sikorsky. He married... Uh, our daughter, and I threatened him with an inch of his life. If he ever hurt her, I would kill him in the name of Jesus. <laughs> and so there's my family. Bonnie and I will be married uh, 45 years, May the 26th. Our son, he is a pastor of a very large church in San Diego, California. His wife happens to be a nurse. She's totally fluent in Spanish. 90% of the people uh, that she tends to uh, delivers babies in a hospital in South San Diego and Chula Vista uh, are Spanish speakers only and they have three children two boys and a girl and then uh, Adam and Stacy are on staff at North Central University in Minneapolis and I'm just very thankful and I'm very blessed Amen. my great-grandparents migrated here they were starving to death in uh, Northern Ireland and illiterate but they were able to get here and because of their sacrifice because of their commitment my, my grandparents were blessed. My grandfather has two patents. He's passed away now. But because of my great-grandparents, my, my grandparents were blessed. And because my grandparents were blessed, my parents were blessed. And I'm blessed. And now my children and my grandchildren are blessed. You don't just serve the Lord for yourself. I mean, you don't know who's coming after you. You guys got your first little baby here, Gabriel. What a... Oh, number two, where you look like first parents. You got that silly grin on your face. Uh, <laughs> you know, you just don't know what your children are going to do and what your uh, grandchildren are going to do. Uh, this little girl right here is such an amazing leader. She is just amazing. She's seventh grade. She's doing ninth and tenth grade math. Wow. And she always cares for the uh, underdogs in school, and, and she always reaches out to people of minority. She always reaches out to loners, always reaches out to the disabled, and I just know she's going to be a dynamic leader for Jesus. Amen. So you don't just serve the Lord for yourself. You serve the Lord for future generations. And if you're not married yet, don't get all tight, uptight about it. God led Eve to Adam. If you'll just become the man, the woman that you're supposed to be, God will lead the right person into your life. That's the way it works. And if you end up a life of celibacy, you could be a spiritual mother and a spiritual father and a spiritual big brother and a spiritual big sister and a spiritual favorite uncle and a spiritual favorite auntie. You got some of those in your life? I mean, they bless you even when you don't deserve to be blessed. And they know how to slip you money just at the right time. <laughs> Hallelujah for those kind of relatives. Thank you, Jesus. And you can be one. You can be one. What you did not have in your life, you can provide for other people in their lives. Amen. Glory to God. Well, we're going to look at Mark chapter 10 today. Uh, Mark chapter 10. But I want to set the text up with some pictures. Now, you may not be happy that you came to church today when you find out the title of the sermon, but before we get to that, if you'll put the first picture up, an archaeological, uh, actually it's an old church, uh, and this is where the Nicene Creed was put together in the year 325. 
I think we all know about the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty and so on and so forth. What you have to remember about the first 300 years of the church, do you realize you're part of an organization that is older than Apple, that is older than any car dealership, that is older than any country that you're from, that is older than the Constitution of the United States? You are a part of something that God has been doing for millennials. I mean, you, you've got to have a bigger appreciation and a bigger view of the local church. Hallelujah for the church, for the ecclesia, for the called out ones, where God shows his manifold, many cultured, many faceted, many colored wisdom. There's certain things you'll never know about God on your own. You'll only know them in the community and fellowship of believers. Can you say amen? Amen. Um, we don't know who wrote the Apostles' Creed, and we don't know where it was written, and we don't know exactly when it was written. It was first or second century. But the Nicene Creed, we know that it was written in Nicaea, Turkey, in the year 325. And there was a council of bishops that were brought together, 318 of them, to deal with heresy in the church. Because of the persecution for the first 300 years or so, the church was underground. It was in secrecy. And it was in seclusion for just doing what we're doing here today because Christians were being horribly slaughtered. And because there was no uniformity of meeting and all of that, particularly in the area of the divinity of Christ, there was a lot of false teaching, a lot of false understanding. If you put the next picture up, this is an early artist rendition from the 400s of the bishops that were gathered together there in Nicaea, Turkey, whose responsibility was to expand upon the Apostles' Creed and in particular clarify what we believe about the divinity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. And see the guy in the bottom? in perdition, that was a her heretical priest from Alexandria, Egypt, and this author thought he would get one last slam in there and put him underneath everybody and in perdition. There's so much I could say about those creeds. Many churches, our church in New Orleans, because of the strong Catholicism there, every single week, out loud, they say the Apostles' Creed. It is very meaningful. It is not repetition. It's a foundation of what we believe. It's really cool the way they do it. In fact, every single week they have communion there at Wayne and Christie's Church. And the way they do it is not meaningless. It's very, very meaningful. They've contextualized the gospel. Many churches do the Apostle Creed. The Eastern Orthodox churches, they say the expanded, very long Nicene Creed together. So much I could say about this. But my point that I want to set up the text with today is what one ancient author said about the 318 delegates that came under the Holy Spirit's leadership and put together this great creed of the church. This historian said of the 318 delegates attending, fewer than 12, listen, had not lost an eye, or lost a hand, or did not limp on a leg 
lamed by torture for their Christian faith. They suffered for believing in Jesus Christ. For doing what you do. They had eyes poked out. They had hands cut off. Their legs were broken. Their hips were broken. Out of 318 delegates, less than 12 of them, this historian said, did not limp or look with one eye or only had one hand. Here's the title of the sermon today as we look at the text. When I pray, some of you might just want to go home. The title of the sermon today is The Road to Glory is Lined with Suffering. The Road to Glory is Lined with Suffering. Well, thank you, Jesus. Don't shout me down when I'm preaching good. But I'm preaching good right there. Mark chapter 10, let's stand together as we read from the Word. Mark chapter 10, we're going to read all the way from verse 32 through verse 45. And I'm reading from the New King James Version. Do you love the Word? Yes. Is it a lamp under your feet and a light under your yes. pathway? Yes. Do you hide its words in your heart that you might not sin against God? You have not stopped memorizing the Word of God yet, have you? I think I'm the oldest person in the house. I don't know, brother, you and I might be on the same competition there, but uh, I still memorize scripture. I still hide it in my heart. I started memorizing scripture when I was in the fourth grade, and I'm still doing it. There's so much to learn. Mark chapter 10, beginning to read at verse 32. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. <laughs> but Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? He was talking about his suffering, not water baptism, not spirit baptism. They said to him, we are able. Self-sufficiency there. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. In other words, I'm going to suffer, you're going to suffer. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, 
But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for how many? Many. I like to say, may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word and give us revelation and understanding. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you've protected the word. You've brought the word to us, the canonization of the word. Lord, it's not just that this contains the word of God. This is the word of God. It is life and breath unto us. We shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Holy Spirit, breathe upon this time together new life and give us revelation to where we are living in life. Lord, we love you so much. We pray this in your name, Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Give somebody a hug and a God bless you and you may be seated. Metro praise. Hallelujah. Notice in verses 33 and 34, Jesus says that he is going to suffer. He mentioned this two times before in chapter 8, verse 31. He said, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Also in chapter 9, verse 31, for the second time, he said, for he taught his disciples and said to them, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise at the third day. Then for the fourth time, Jesus tells the disciples that he would rise again. We read it in the last part of verse 34. There are so many things in this passage of Scripture, but a few things I want us to look at in this text. The first one I am calling the loneliness of Jesus. Look at verse 32. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them. Would you say out loud, before them? Before them. They were walking along this road, and it says that Jesus was out in front, and he was alone. They were afraid to go up to Jesus. It says in our text that as they followed, they were afraid. They apparently were bewildered at some of the things that Jesus was saying. Look at verse 31. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. That's a proverbial saying of Jesus Christ, a proverb of Jesus. They were bewildered at some of the things that Jesus was saying and Jesus was doing. They knew that tragedy was coming because he was talking about it again and again and again. But they did not fully understand what he was saying. They were afraid to approach him. 
So they left him alone out front. And how many of you know that's the way it is with the really big issues of life? There are certain decisions that you have to make alone. Of course, we always seek good, godly counsel. But when it comes to things like endurance and perseverance and integrity, when it comes to things like right decisions and honesty and separation from the filth in the world, you have to walk the road of life all alone. Had Jesus shared his decision to die on the cross fully with his disciples, they would have tried to prevent him from doing so. For those of you in leadership positions, you know that there are certain decisions that have to be made, certain roads that you have to walk down, whether people understand, whether people agree with you or not, but they are integral decisions. And you have to make those decisions and walk that road in the own loneliness of your soul. A.W. Tozier puts it this way. He was a famous pastor up here in Chicago way back in post-World War II. And he said, most of the world's great souls have been lonely. We run from loneliness in our culture. Singles whine and cry because they come home and there's nobody to share with. And we blast the music to try to take care of our loneliness. But there is a road in life where you have to learn to be okay with the loneliness of that journey. Frederick Nietzsche said, life always gets harder towards the summit. The cold increases, the responsibility increases. The great Apostle Paul understood the loneliness of leadership and the loneliness of life. He said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.15, You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Life can be a lonely, lonely road. But for the Christian, Jesus walks with us on that road. Amen. And so we're really not alone. Here in this text, there's so much I could say about it. We see the loneliness of Jesus. You don't always have to have the thrill of the crowd. You don't always have to be the center of attention. You don't always have to have warm little fuzzies in life to successfully live for Jesus. You've got to be willing to walk it alone, to make the right decisions alone. If everybody else is cheating on their time card, you walk alone and you don't cheat on your time card. If everybody else is stealing tools at work, you don't steal tools at work regardless of the peer pressure. We think peer pressure is just for teenagers. It goes all the way through life. You have to walk it alone. I played on a football team in high school, bragging a little bit, we never lost a game. In those days, there were no state playoffs. We were undefeated. And I wasn't strong, but I was fast and fearless. And if you tackled me, you paid for it. We got by with stuff in those days you don't get by with today. I mean, we'd fight on the bottom of the pile and just all kind of terrible stuff. 
you get out there on a football field, you lose your cool and you play and everybody thinks you're playing good and you're just mad at that guy across from you. <laughs> and everybody else was sleeping with the girls and bragging about it. And John Ruzik and I were the only two virgins on that football team. And they paid a girl 50 bucks to try to get us to go to bed with her. And I wanted to because I got red blood in my veins. And I got a sex drive just like you do. But I was afraid in the middle of it. If I did, Jesus would come back again. <laughs> you say, that's weird. No, it kept my pants zipped up. It kept me from getting drunk. It kept drugs out of my brain. The fear of the Lord that's called. I didn't want to miss that. I didn't want to miss Jesus coming back. And John and I had to walk that road alone. People made fun of us. They called us all kinds of names. There's an aspect to the Christian life where you've got to walk it alone. Even other family members, even other Christians, they won't tithe, they won't give to missions, but you do the right thing and you walk it alone. And you watch what God does in your life. So much I could say about that. But look at the second part of verse 32. I'm calling this the attraction of Jesus. Jesus was going before them, and it says in the New King James, and they were amazed. There's an influence of Jesus. There is a magnetism to Jesus Christ. There is an attraction to Jesus Christ. The disciples kept following Jesus even though he was talking about being killed, even though he was talking about pain and suffering, it says that they were afraid, but they kept following Jesus. I don't know you. I don't know your life. I don't know your family. But I'm just here to tell you that serving Jesus Christ is wonderful. You say, well, preacher, you have so much, you don't understand. Listen, everything I have is a blessing from God. Amen. Everything. Nobody in my family had ever been to college. My father didn't even complete the sixth grade. We didn't have anything of this world's goods. If it wasn't for grandparents, my home church, and probably angels... I mean, I remember one Sunday we sat down and Sunday meal was bread, no butter, Kool-Aid, and beans. That's it. We had no meat. We had no butter. That was our Sunday lunch. My younger brother and I are like, cool, we'll put the beans on the bread. It was my older brother's turn to pray, and he prayed. My dad was at work. My mom burst into tears because that's all she could give her three boys. Ran into the bedroom and we're thinking, what's wrong with mom? We're going to eat the beans. <laughs> Everything I have is because of my relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. Every goodness, every blessing, serving Jesus is wonderful. There's an attraction about Jesus Christ. There's an attraction about the Christian life. It is not a bad way to live. Some people have the idea that Christians are prudish and they're no fun and they're bound up by religion and they feel sorry for Christians. 
but there is joy in serving the Lord. Isaiah 12:3 says, therefore with joy you will draw waters from the wells of salvation. People will disappoint you. Churches will disappoint you. But if you'll get your eyes on Jesus, you'll be attracted to him. You will be drawn to him because there is a magnetism about Jesus Christ. There is an attraction about Jesus Christ. There is joy in serving Jesus. Don't make this Christian life so hard. Jesus is wonderful. It is wonderful to serve him. It's a wonderful life. Somebody ought to make a Christmas movie about that. <laughs> Hallelujah. There's an old hymn that says, A wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord. A wonderful Savior to me. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock where rivers of pleasure I see. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. The shadows of dry, that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hideth my life in the depths of his love, and he covers me there with his hand. This text says there's an attraction to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is amazing. People are not always amazing, but Jesus is amazing. People are not always attractive, but Jesus is attractive. Churches are not always attractive. Christians are not always attractive, but Jesus is always attractive. Jesus! Look at verses 33 and 34. I'm calling this the courage of Jesus. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Would you think about this? We read those words in a few seconds. But Jesus knew what was ahead. He knew the incredible pain. He knew the suffering, not just the physical and the physiological suffering. But he knew he would take upon himself the sins of all humankind. But Jesus Christ kept moving forward. And it's the same way with us. There is pain in life. There is difficulty in life. There are trials. There's suffering. There's tribulation. But the word of the Lord to every weary pilgrim is courage. Last night, Bonnie was flicking the channels, and the Wizard of Oz was on there. And what did the lion want from the Oz? He wanted some courage. We need to be reminded of Paul's words in 1 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, of timidity, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. In Joshua chapter 1, four times Joshua takes over from Moses. And four times God says to him, you've got to be strong. You've got to be courageous. You've got to be strong. You've got to be courageous. You've got to be very strong and courageous. You've got to be strong and very, very courageous. There was a calling upon Joshua's life. Just like there's a calling upon your life, there are people that you can touch, people that you can minister to, things that you can do that no other human being on this planet can do. But in order for you to do that, you have to be courageous. 
We know that Joshua is a type. He is an Old Testament picture of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the New Covenant. And just as Joshua had to have courage to fulfill God's life for his life, Jesus Christ had to have courage to do God's will for his life. And you have to have courage, and I have to have courage. Amen. People decide, I'm going to work in a church. I'm going to volunteer in a church. And all of a sudden, somebody hurts their feelings, and they quit serving, and they quit volunteering. you got to have some courage. Yes. My dad was a professional boxer, and he used to say, you got to know how to take a punch, and you got to know how to throw a punch. you got to know how to throw a punch, and you got to know how to take a punch. And that's the way life is. We have to have courage. The Christian life. And Christian ministry, it is not for the weak or the faint of heart. It takes courage to live for God. It takes courage to do what's right. It takes courage to stay in there day in and day out. Anybody can go the way of the world. Anybody can fulfill the lust of the flesh. It takes courage to say yes to Jesus. Courage to say no to the devil. Courage to say no to the flesh. Courage to say no to the spirit of this world. <laughs> courage is such a wonderful, wonderful character quality. Matthew Huffman was the six-year-old son of missionaries in Brazil. And one morning he woke up with a terrible fever and he kept passing out. And his mother swooped him up in his arms and his daddy and mom rushed him to a nearby hospital. <coughs> and as he was laying there in his mother's lap, he kept reaping, reaching up and grabbing. He was sweating profusely. His temperature was out of sight. He would pass out and come to and he'd reach up and grab. His mother would put his arm down and say, Honey, what are you doing? And he said, Jesus is telling me just to be brave, to be courageous, and to take his hand, and it's going to be okay. And a few days later, he passed away from bacterial meningitis. And a lot of things in his life he did not get to experience. But in the moment of death, he had the courage to trust Jesus Christ. You lose your job? Don't get mad at God. Have some courage. Yes. Somebody says something bad at you, don't get bitter and resentful. Have some courage. Keep doing what's right. Keep moving forward. There's so many inspiring stories of courage. Soldiers in battle, those sick fighting a disease, those fighting injustice. I read about a Russian priest named Alexander Borisov back in 1991 in Moscow. And you'll remember some of you, the people were protesting the government and they wanted more freedoms and the government put soldiers and, and, and military vehicles and particularly lots of tanks yeah. everywhere in Moscow and all the news people were saying there's going to be hundreds of people who are going to lose their lives. And this Russian priest he grabs a box of New Testament and he begins to jump up on the half tracks and jump up on the tanks and he began to throw New Testament, Russian language New Testament into the tanks and he would beg the soldiers and he would say, please do not kill your comrades, do not kill your brothers and sisters, do not kill your fellow countrymen. And because of that priest's courage, 
There were hundreds and probably thousands of lives that were saved on that hot August day in 1991. Jerusalem and all of its suffering was ahead of our Lord in our text. And he had courage. When you're confused, would you have the courage to believe Jeremiah 29, 11? I know what I'm planning for you, says the Lord. Good plans, not plans to hurt you. When you're reliving yesterday's failures, would you have the courage to stand on Romans 8, 1? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If you're in Jesus Christ, you are judged not guilty. When the devil reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. He's going to be thrown into a lake of fire forever and ever. Thank you, Jesus. On those nights when you wonder if God really cares, you wonder if he really cares and you wonder where he is, would you have the courage to claim Hosea 11.9? For I am God, the Holy One in your midst. He is with you. We see the courage of Jesus Christ in our text. In verses 35 through 45, we see what I call two standards of greatness. The first standard is verse 35 through 41. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Boy, it's very dangerous. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Sounds like the prosperity gospel, doesn't it? Sounds like preachers who say, well, maybe you don't want to believe God to be a millionaire, but I'm going to believe God to be a millionaire. It is a false gospel. It is the biggest heresy in our culture today. The prosperity gospel is rooted in greed. The poverty gospel is rooted in guilt. But the real gospel of God is rooted in grace. And he will bless your life. There will be upward mobility in your life. When you stop wasting money on drugs and alcohol and, and wrong entertainment, there will be financial upward mobility and blessing in your life when you come to Jesus Christ. But it doesn't mean that you'll become a millionaire. If you do, pay your tithes to Metro Praise International. <laughs> James and John had these worldly dreams about positions in the Lord's kingdom. This just shows us how selfish our human nature is. But it also tells us something about the author, John Mark. He was honest about his portrayal of the disciples. He tells us they were imperfect men. But yet through all their trials and through all their tribulations, they still impacted the world for Jesus Christ. And this tells me, in spite of my imperfections, in spite of my lack, in spite of insecurities and intimidations and inadequacies, if I will live a surrendered life to Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter. God can use me and he can use you in spite of ourselves. Notice verse 40. Jesus said, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. It is for those for whom it is prepared. Jesus did not say there was not a place on his right hand or a place on his left hand. He just said, I can't give it to anybody who just wants it. Here's my point. Are you listening? We know that heaven is a free gift. Amen? Amen. But our place in heaven 
is a reward. Cannot expect to sit around here on the earth and do nothing for the Lord and get a reward in heaven. Don't shout me down when I'm preaching good, when I'm preaching good right there. John the Revelator talks about a half hour of silence in heaven. And I believe what that will be is where people see how much they could have done for the Lord. We argue over petty, little, bitty stuff, things in the church that won't matter a hundred years from now should Jesus tarry. James and John are making a request here in verse 37. We want to sit at your right hand and the other on your left in your glory, Lord. But they failed to realize what so many of us realize. It costs something to serve the Lord. It costs something to get answers to prayer. A life of prayer is work. A life of holiness is work. Jesus said in John 17, 4, I've glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work which you have given me to do. James and John failed to understand Jesus. They had this earthly idea of the Messiah, and it took his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, his appearance, his ascension, for them to really understand God's eternal plan. That's why you have to be born again. That's why you cannot just go to church and be religious. You'll never understand the Bible. You'll never understand trials and tribulation. You'll never understand God's people. You'll never understand the plan of God until you're born again. Verses 42 through 45 is what I call the heavenly standard. This was the standard of greatness set by Jesus. He said, whoever wants to be great has got to become a servant. And whoever wants to become greatest of all must become the slave of all. You know what the life of Jesus Christ was all about? Submission. Submission to the will of the Father. For the first time in the book of Mark, Jesus interprets the purpose of his life. Look at verse number 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He came to die in our place, die in your place, die in my place. He came as a ransom to free those who are kidnapped by sin. The Greek word for ransom is only used here and used in Matthew 20, verse 28. It means that the death of Jesus Christ takes the place of sinful humanity. Mark 10, 45 is the most important theological passage in Mark's gospel. It literally reads, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom instead of many. The Greek word for ransom comes from a verb that means to loose. I want you to listen to the word of the Lord today. God has great ideas. He has great plans in this idea of ransom. The idea is release. He wants his people to be free. He wants his people to be released from the things that bind them. Loose from the chains that are holding them back. In the first century, the idea of ransom was money that was used to set a slave free. It was called redemption money, ransom money, money that was paid to rescue and release someone. So our Lord Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom price to free us from the slavery of sin. Hallelujah. So many wonderful things in our text today. Like Jesus, we got to go at life alone 
at times. We've got to be courageous. We need to stay attracted to Jesus. And we need to make sure our standard of greatness is servanthood leadership. It's true. The road to glory is lined with suffering. Have you ever wondered why? Why can't it be you just give your life to Jesus and every prayer you pray, boom, gets immediately answered? Well, for one thing, you'd be married to the wrong person. I mean, some of you thought you were in love with an ape, and aren't you glad God didn't answer that prayer? You would have got married and raised a bunch of monkeys. One translation of 2 Corinthians 1.5 says, Just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. Do you see this? Suffering comes in, but com comfort goes out. It's the law of flow and overflow. When trials come, they're supposed to flow through us. We lean on Jesus Christ. Trials come. Comfort's supposed to flow through us for others who are on the road to suffering. Someone wrote, when we experience suffering, God's comfort will abound. For tribulations teach us where true comfort can be found. Stand with me, will you please? Frank and Billy Wilcox were missionaries for many, many years in Pakistan. And their baby died. And a Punjabi Christian came and sat with them all day and expressed sympathy and love and concern and care. And when the Punjabi Christian left, he said this to this missionary couple who had lost their little baby. Some of you have lost a child. I'm so sorry. I can't think of anything worse. It's not supposed to be that way. Grandparents are supposed to die first, then the parents. It's not supposed to be children dying. Life is so unfair sometimes. And the Punjabi Christian with brokenness said to this missionary couple in Pakistan, said to them, tragedies like this are like being placed in a pot of boiling water. Don't become hard and indifferent and unresponsive. If you put the picture up on the screen, it'll make you a hard-boiled egg. How you like that? Those eyes. That fork's about ready to stab into that hard-boiled egg. He said to this missionary couple, he said, but in this great time of loss and tragedy, pray that Almighty God makes you like a potato. You become soft, you become pliable, you become tasteful. Don't let the sufferings of this life, don't let the difficulties of this life make you unresponsive, make you hard, make you bitter and resentful. This may sound funny, but if you're on this journey of the Christian life, or you're on this journey of life and you're experiencing suffering, 
would you pray God and make you a potato? <laughs> I don't want to be a hard-boiled egg Christian Jesus. I want to be a potato for God. Hallelujah. I want to be tasteful. I want to be soft. You split that baby open. You put some butter on it. You put some chili on it. You put some cheese on it. You put some sour cream on it. Ooh, come on, that's good stuff right there. Some of the best people I know are people who have suffered so much. And they've come forth as gold and silver and precious stone. Heavenly Father, we just bow our hearts and our heads before you. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you for